Today's episode is being sponsored by Swiss Hospitality Guild. SHG is a training center created to meet the strong demand for specialized hospitality staff. This training concept was born from the experience and expertise of its founder, Egidio Marcato. Egidio has become a reference in the world of hospitality coaching and has had success stories in skills championships, including Swiss skills, Euro skills, and world skills, as well as the AICR World's Best Receptionist Competition. Contact SHG at www.swisshospitalityguild.com. This is 50 Shades of Hospitality, and I'm Crystal Cavan, your host. Today we're welcoming Peter Cross. Hello, Peter. So happy to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, uh, Crystal, for having me on your show. Could you tell our listeners about yourself and your background in event and sport management? Uh, my name is Peter Cross, 59 years old, and uh, I am English uh, Swiss. I have worked uh, on and off in the event industry since 1992, when I worked initially on the Winter Olympics in Albaville, and then uh, I've been involved in tourism and education, and now I'm back working primarily with events. So, Peter, can you explain the link between event and sport management and hospitality? Oh, yeah, it's it's huge. Um, If you think back... uh, primarily about sport you know you, even if you have a kids football competition um somebody's cutting oranges for the halftime drink there'll be somebody making cake for after the matches and then it goes all the way through to you know any stadium in the world uh, any venue in the world will have uh, restaurants they'll have bars they'll have receptions uh, and then uh, you take it through to the world cup when you just have a massive um element of hospitality just to make it work you know 99% of football supporters at the world cup won't be local people they'll all be staying in hotels they'll all be buying food and beverage they'll all be looking for uh, hosts to uh, answer their questions so it's it's just part and parcel of um, uh, events yes and you've just recently returned from four months in qatar where you were managing the world cup broadcasting logistics for journalists and technicians from around the world can you describe what your job consists of and what were the highlights of this experience? Um, well, first of all, slight rectification. I was um, I was involved in the logistics department. My main uh, role was to look after the accommodation uh, for the uh, technicians and the production teams and my uh, logistics colleagues. Um, so we had, uh, for the first time, a World Cup. Well, not the first time. Technically, the first time was in Uruguay in, 19, in the 1930s in the World Cup, but this is the first time in the modern era the World Cup was hosted in one city. Normally, um, there's between eight and 12 cities, so that's quite a significant difference. So that meant everything was uh, condensed into one place. And uh, so all the supporters were in one city, all the um, support uh, crews, all our guys, uh, all the FIFA people, all the journalists, all the sponsors, all the marketing people, all their entourage around the million or so estimated football supporters who came during the World Cup were all hosted in the same city, which was Doha, which was a city of just over a million people, which is, you know, sounds big, but it's not that big when you're looking at those numbers. I work for a company called Host Broadcast Services. They decided to put the majority of their staff into one hotel, which is called the uh, Esdan Hotel, which is a four-star hotel 
in um, Doha, which is amongst the biggest hotels in the Middle East and Gulf region. So they have over 3,000 beds in their um, hotel, uh, which is in right in the middle of uh, Doha in the city center. It's, it's unique. Was the hotel built specifically for the World Cup or was it there before? No, it's about 15 years old. A hotel, uh, you can probably guess, like most um, oil-rich countries, there's always a lot of building going on. Um, I had some colleagues who worked in the Asian Games in Doha in 2006, and um, the neighborhood where the hotel I uh, worked in uh, was situated uh, didn't exist. Uh, the hotel wasn't uh, was just about being built. Um, there was nothing around it. Um, so since 2006, you know, it's just been phenomenal, the amount of growth there. So um, 15 years is actually quite old for a hotel in Doha. Um, and it, it felt it. It was a little bit um, worn at the edges. But that's another story. Um, but, um, yeah, it was actually from a facilities perspective for our needs. It was um, fantastic uh, having everybody in one place or the majority, the senior management stayed in um, an intercontinental hotel. Um, but having all, all the staff in one hotel, you can just imagine the, the logistics of moving people um, around to the uh, different sites that they were working at, the venues, but also the what they call the International Broadcast Centre, which um, holds uh, several thousand uh, employees as well, not just our employees. All the media, all the journalists um, are based there. Uh, so you, um, it was really important that we had everybody in the same place. It just made information uh, flow easy, um, uh, resolving issues when people were sick and stuff like that. So that was my role. It was managing that unit uh, from managing our contract, tract, making sure the contract, the conditions of the contract were obviously um, uh, respected by the, uh, the hotel um, management team. And is the hotel managed by Qatari people or is it managed by a foreign company? No, it's it's managed and uh, well, it's actually owned by uh, a Qatari um, company, uh, which is called the Esdan uh, Real Estate. They uh, have a palace hotel in Qatar. They also have um, several real estate units. They build uh, property and run property. Uh, the actual hotel itself was a mixture of hotel rooms, uh, but the majority of rooms uh, were uh, apartment style um, rooms. So they had uh, kitchenettes in them which again was another big plus for us because that meant uh, staff could um, cook for themselves if, if required, which, you know, for, you know, several of us were there for three months, four months in my case. So um, being able to cook for yourself is, is quite a big deal in these uh, circumstances. So the hotel, yes, was owned by Qataris, but it's managed by the GM was uh, Egyptian. Uh, my point of contact was um, uh, from Tunisia. Uh, so yes, a very strong um, North African um, presence in the management team and they, they were great really good people really easy to work with um, and it was a pleasure to work with them any highlights can you tell us about your experience i imagine that this was the first time you have ever worked in the middle east yep definitely um so i i had uh, two two assistants um who um dare i say it were uh, both graduates of lausanne hotel school um nicholas and uh, julie Okay, uh, who were fantastic. They both already worked uh, with me in uh, the Youth Olympics in Lausanne. Julie had also worked in the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, Nicholas had already worked um, on logistics for the Solar Impulse. So they had already quite a good background um, in um, event logistics. 
and they also had a, a background in hospitality plus their obviously education so um they were the perfect um match um and that, that was part of the condition when i accepted the job with my employer that um uh, they came with me so uh, i was very pleased that they were able to join me uh, they had a great time so um yeah having a good 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 team was really uh, good. Yeah, we did sixty-five thousand nights, bed nights, just to give you an idea of the volume. So obviously, we we weren't operating; uh, the hotel was operating. What we were doing uh, essentially was um, interfacing between the contract, which is the kind of the bottom line, and then making the hotel understand our needs because we weren't like um, tourists. Yeah, we, we had very specific needs. Uh, we were running, um, for example, breakfast operations for about eight hours every day. So uh, part of the deal is uh, the staff, when they're employed, they have um, lodging, obviously accommodation, with breakfast. And then the other two meals a day, they either get at the venue or they have to provide that themselves. However, the breakfast was a big deal, deal because we had people, it was a 24-7 operation. So we had people maybe leaving to go to the broadcast center at four o'clock in the morning. We'd have people leaving the stadium. So if a final uh, or a match had overtime and penalties, they wouldn't uh, leave the stadium until four o'clock in the morning. So you had this enormous amount of um, crossover. And so you had people looking for maybe takeout breakfast at four o'clock in the morning. And then you'd have people come back at four, they go to bed and they wake up at midday and they want brunch as part of their breakfast. So uh, we ran breakfast from four until uh, midday. Um, and so again, you know, uh, 65,000 um, nights, that's a, that's a lot of breakfast as well. We had, um, uh, in the end, at the peak time, we had four, five um, breakfast um, areas in, in the hotel designated for, just for our use. So yeah, it, it, that, that just working on that scale, uh, that volume is unique. Um, I say that we worked on a similar volume uh, in the Youth Olympics as well, because myself, Julie and Nicholas, we also were involved in the managing of the Athletes Village and the Athletes Village in the vortex next to the Lausanne uh, University. Um, if you're familiar with that, that hosted about 1,900 um, athletes at peak time as well. So um, it wasn't the same length of period, but at peak time, we were around about um, 2,000, which was the same that we were handling in Qatar as well. So we did have some relevant uh, experience of that because it's, you know, the, ch the challenge when you're dealing with those numbers, you know, some days we'd have people, maybe 500 people checking in uh, for our team. In, you know, inversely, we'd have 600 people checking out um, as well. So you had to uh, make sure the hotel Obviously, they knew that information, but what we needed the hotel to understand is um, how we wanted them to process uh, those, those um, operational aspects. You know, we requested, um, we didn't want to use the um, normal uh, check-in area, for example, because we realized that the flow, you know, because they obviously had um, security mag and bag scanners at the door. As soon as you put um, one piece of luggage in there, it just slows everything down. When you've got buses of people coming from the airport, who've traveled, you know, um, intercontinental flights who are exhausted, the last thing they want to do is start queuing um, and so on. So we set up a whole uh, system to ensure um, that the check-in and the check-out went as well as they could do um, regarding the volume of people that we had. And it, and it worked fantastically. Yeah, and that's quite a challenge when you have so many people coming and going, and I can't even imagine what that's like. You were also in Russia for the 2018 World Cup. What was that experience like? So, so um, that was a more traditional uh, organization in the respect that uh, uh, we had, I think, 
I can't remember exactly. It's either eight or 12 venues. I think it was eight venues. So um, spread around Russia, which is, you know, in itself is another challenge because uh, between some of the venues, we had t teams of production um, uh, engineers moving between venues. It was a seven hour flight to get to the other venue to give you, an, uh, yeah, and, and that, and all the venues were only in uh, the European part of uh, Russia. They didn't have any venues in the Asian part. So, you know, it's just the scale of it. It's like traveling across you know, America from New York to San Francisco. It's just huge. So um, my my role there, because it was um, done by venue, I was uh, what they call a venue logistics manager. So um, and in Qatar, we still had those roles, but they didn't have as much activity because we had um, people like myself doing the accommodation. We also had a transportation manager doing the, uh, the transportation and so on. So venue logistics. And I was situated in a, a, a city called Rostov um, uh, on Don, which is in the south, on the um, not far from the Black Sea. And um, uh, venue logistics, you basically look after uh, all the um, logistics, hospitality elements of the operations there for the broadcasters. So uh, that's accommodation, that's uh, shuttles from accommodation to the venues and places of work. It's the uh, transport from the airports to the accommodation. It's the um, food and beverage at the accommodation. It's the catering on site. It's the uh, accreditation. It's the security. It's the uniforms. It's the general welfare uh, of the staff and probably another 10 things I've forgotten as well. So um, you're basically underpinning all the operations. You just basically helicopter in maybe um, normally at a venue, we'd have about 250 300 staff working at a venue just on the broadcast. And then uh, half of the, that team would move according to the different matches around the venues. And the other half would stay there and fix stuff and maintain stuff and basically make sure everything was in shape for when the uh, production teams arrive. Um, so there's constantly people coming and going. There's uh, needs for accreditation. They lose accreditation. There's uniforms that don't fit. There's people who get injured sometimes working. You get... Um, Issues, obviously, with the hotel, because you're never in a five-star hotel or a Four Seasons hotel. Um, you tend to be in a local uh, three- or four-star hotel with all the issues that come with that. So that, that is such an important element. Uh, and I always say uh, it's, the post is called Venue Logistics Manager, but actually I think it's mainly hospitality because you're looking after the well-being of the, uh, the crew that are there. If they're not comfortable if they're not in a, a nice comfortable bed that's um you know doesn't you know that fits them and uh, there's not hot water they can't do their job you know they're working you know crazy hours very often um you know without any days off uh, during weeks if not months under massive amount of pressure so it's really important all the logistics and i always say if they don't talk about us it means we're doing a good job the only time they talk about us is when it's not working out yeah yeah, it must be a lot of pressure for you, a lot of stress. I imagine you need a couple of weeks or even a couple of months to recuperate after working in those kinds of conditions. Yeah, well, without a doubt. Um, you know, days, days off, um, the way that you're employed, um, it, you have to accept it. You, you get paid a daily rate, so you get paid seven days a week, which then uh, you're contracting services. It's not really a classic employment contract. So by definition, um, you're supposed to provide services seven days a week. So if there's work that needs to be done. There's work that needs to be done. Um, so days off are quite rare, but um, you you know that. If you don't know that, then you probably are in for a shock and you won't be doing it again. But then invariably you won't get employed. Um, 
it's 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 kind of like one of these worlds i think it's probably like working on um rock and roll concerts and stuff like that tours yeah you only get a job through people that know you um because it's all about um having the uh the the stamina you know the physical stamina the mental stamina uh to deal with it obviously you need the competencies to manage you know the the hotels and relationships and stuff like that but if you're not up for it um physically and mentally it's um it's going to be a very very tough and any comparisons between those two experiences, the two World Cups, in two very different places? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, in Qatar because the ironically, there's not a lot of well, it's not ironically, there's not a lot of Qataris. There's only three hundred thousand Qataris in a country of three million. There's uh, two point seven million um, migrant or expat workers um, living there. So there's not a, there weren't a lot of Qataris. So um, the two assistants I had, um, Nicholas and Julie from Switzerland, normally they would be local people doing that job. So in Russia, I had uh, Anastasia and um, I've forgotten her name. She's Armenian. Lo lovely. Both of them lovely uh, young ladies. Ironically, Anastasia had uh, done a postgraduate at SHMS, which was just pure coincidence in Switzerland. Pure coincidence. And then um, when I got their contact numbers and I called them on WhatsApp on their Russian numbers, and I did a video call with Anastasia, not knowing anything about her background, and she's actually in a place with that looked very familiar. I said, where are you? She said, oh, I'm in Switzerland. I said, really? I said, I'm in Montreux. I said, really? <laughs> and I'm thinking she's in Rostov in southern Russia on the Black Sea, but she just finished her graduation and she was doing a French course in Montreux. So um, what, what I love about that is that, you know, the, the, the more you travel, the smaller the world gets. And I'm, I'm sure Egidio has uh, lots of stories of, um, uh, of you know, that on the same idea. I mean, running into people in all different corners of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that it, it, the, the reason I mentioned that story is because when you work closely with people from that town, then you have a lot more insight into the culture. Uh, and I, some, some of the highlights of, you know, you can talk about, you know, being in a stadium with 60,000 people when Japan uh, nearly beat Belgium. Uh, it was one of the fantastic games that we had in uh, Russia. Um, but actually the highlight was my head driver uh, taking me to his grandmother's house uh, and drinking uh, homemade pickled onions and carp that he'd fished from the lake and uh, drinking lots of vodka and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, it's, ju it's just that, you know, that kind of richness uh, that you get when you go uh, to these places, um, which I didn't get as much as that, um, unfortunately, in Qatar. So tell us a little bit about the Youth Olympics in Lausanne. Is this something that happens every four years? Uh, I know it was a really big deal for Lausanne and the city was really excited to how to host the Youth Olympics. Can you tell us more about that? Yep. So the Youth Olympics, it's winter and summer. So um, I worked on the winter uh, Youth Olympics and then they have the summer ones. So every two years is either win winter or summer Youth Olympics. And um, the IOC quite um, cleverly you know, realized that they need to engage young people more uh, in the Olympic movement. And um, uh, the normal you know the olympic games that we all know about um the demographic of people that are following that and watching that on tv uh, is aging and um you know obviously um decreasing as well and um they're not maybe um 
attracting as easily as they like, would like to the younger demographic because there's a lot more on as well. There's a lot more in their world and um, it's, a, it's a very different kettle, kettle of fish. So um, the Youth Olympics is part of that movement is to engage um, uh, the, the youth the young athletes, but also they uh, have special schemes where they're using um, social media influences uh, also to work and they are looking very much for a, an engagement uh, at all levels of the um, event, not just the athletes, but in terms of the organization of it. So Lausanne uh, was an interesting one. I understand um, that Lausanne Youth Olympics was the first and only Olympics of all types to actually make a profit in certainly in the modern era. I think Los Angeles in 1984 maybe made a profit, but um, that was one of the um, kind of objectives of the organizing committee. Uh, Switzerland in general has always discussed the idea of hosting the Winter Olympics, which would make so much sense. Sion has actually applied three times to host the Winter Olympics and has um, three times been rejected. It's the only city in the world that has applied three times for Winter or Summer Olympics and not hosted them. And one of the reasons why is because they haven't had a kind of support from the Swiss population. And, and quite rightly, quite rightly, I'm not going to go into the uh, pros and cons of the um, hosting Olympic Games, but I think it's a wise choice. And uh, the Youth Olympics only got accepted on the basis that um, it couldn't um, overrun its budget. And that was the, you know, it was just the bottom line is, uh, yes, we'd love to host the Youth Olympics. But yes, but it's so Swiss that they actually delivered it because, of course, every Olympic Games says that. But nobody ever manages to deliver it. And what they did in Lausanne, even better, they didn't just break even. They actually made a small profit, which they then donated because it's an association behind it. And uh, it was probably the most ecological um, uh, Olympic Games because that was one of the mandates as well. They had to use public transport. So they, you know, give an example, athletes were flying in all over the world into Geneva and Zurich, and then they'd hop on a train and they'd hop on a train and then they get to Lausanne main station and they get on the uh, local train out to um, uh, University of Lausanne EPFL, the M1, and then they'd um, be um, meted, um, greeted by somebody from the team and then they walk with their luggage to the um, uh, student uh, vortex accommodation where they would be uh, processed and gain their accreditation and um, they'd be in the Olympic Village. So that's a pretty cool thing um, yeah, because that was the first and only Olympic Games that has ever done anything like that. Yeah, and to be involved with that must be fantastic, yeah. to be involved in Olympics that you can really feel good about and to be able to say that it was a positive experience. Yeah. There's still a lot of work to be done. There was, you know, there's, again, I won't go into too much. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Detail, but there were, you know, there's still a lot of issues um, with the Olympic Games in general. Um, so, yes, it was a good good step in the right direction and hopefully becomes um, a case study. You've had a very interesting career in event management and in the hospitality and event management educational field. Do you think that young people wanting to go into event and sports management careers are getting or can get the kind of training that they need? Uh, I think so, yes. I, 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 a lot of it depends where you are and what you have access to. Um, without a doubt, the, um, in my opinion, the leading event management education takes place in America. Uh, America um, has uh, probably um, 50 years um, in advance of Europe in terms of understanding uh, event management and the commercial interests in event management and stadium management, venue management. Um, 
you know, you, there's, there's a great example is I remember going in Toronto to the uh, Sky Dome Stadium where the um, Toronto uh, Blue Jays play. And in the stadium of about 60,000 people, uh, and I realize um, Toronto is in Canada um, and not America before you uh, bring me up on that. Um, but in the stadium, this is like 30 years ago, in the stadium, 60,000 seat stadium, they had a, I think it was probably a Four Seasons Hotel. So integrated into the stadium. So all the rooms looked out onto the playing field. So, you know, and I'm not even talking about the um, bars and restaurants around there. So, yeah, that was just mind blowing, you know, uh, already. Um, Then only 2019, I worked in Le Havre in France on the Women's Football World Cup, which was a fantastic experience. And they just built a new stadium there for the La Havre football team, which is, a, I think, a second division team in France. Ironically or not, the president of the uh, club and stadium is an American guy who used to run a chemical factory there, retired, and then uh, was asked to become president. And part of the project scope for the new stadium was build a hotel integrated into the um, stadium. And it's only 25,000 seats. And uh, he was he was right. And the hotel's full all the time. It operates all the time. They have a, a restaurant which has a, the ability to contract uh, the size. So during um, match days, they have a massive um, uh, area for seating for uh, the restaurant. And then they contract outside of match days to a, maybe a 50-seat restaurant that supports the hotel, but it also allows people to walk in and, and so on. And they have a, you know, like a, a mini kind of um, hall of fame for the footballers and, and, and so on. So um, all of a sudden, you're generating traffic um, uh, all year round in a stadium, which in the past, in Europe, only you know five years ago, probably would have been closed most of the time outside of match day. There was no revenue generation. It just would have been a cost center. Whereas when you look back in America, um, they figured that out uh, 50 years ago. It's like you've got to get these big venues to generate money. Hall, Hall of Fame, do the tours around the stadium, you know, build hotels, bars and restaurants, go out and you know, br- invite people to uh, play baseball on the baseball field and so on. All of that comes through, um, it's strongly linked to the education that people uh, are getting in, in America as well. So without doubt, America is the number one place for that. So basically what you're saying is that perhaps in Europe with the kind of programs we could offer, do you think that young people who want to get into the field of sport and event management should go to a hospitality management school? Or do they have to go to a hospitality management school in the United States to get that kind of education? Um, no, I, I, I think any well-managed uh, hospitality um, institution uh, should be uh, considering that aspect of hospitality event management should be integrated you uh, if you want to look at just purely from a hotel perspective which hotel uh, doesn't run events which event doesn't have hospitality in it so you know it, it's a very natural bed fit um, so you've, you've got to be considering that first of all and if you want to push it a little bit further I think um, hospitality and sport event management and cultural event management are perfect bed partners and um, you know uh, without a doubt um, r- Hospitality in its pure sense is a great uh, um, place to learn the skills 
you know, as I said before, working those long hours where days off are a bit of a lottery, um, working under pressure, dealing with guests, um, dealing with large groups, small groups, individual groups, plumbing, well, all the issues that you get in, in a hotel, you, you're going to get in, in an event. So um, it's a slightly different context. You might not be wearing a suit or whatever, but it's, it's, it's still the same skill set that you need. So I, I think hospitality is a, a great environment. You know, and I, I never studied events. I learn everything I use and apply in events through uh, more tourism than pure hotel management, but um, it's still in the field of hospitality. So yes, it's, uh, it's a perfect um, vehicle for it. And do you think that management schools today are focusing enough on practical skills? Do you think students are getting enough of the practical skills that they'll need or the interpersonal skills that they need? And do you think the schools could do a better job of preparing them? Uh, it, it's a probably difficult question in the respect I'm a little bit out of the loop now. Um, I know certainly from my days at uh, Glion Hotel School, um, the emphasis we placed on practical training, um, which I think was extremely beneficial for the students, but also at the same time, uh, the internship uh, process was extremely important. And I think um, uh, acquiring skills and competencies are, are obviously important, but knowing yourself, whether you're able to cope, as I referred to earlier on, uh, physically and mentally with the strain and pressure, and then do I actually want to give that much to something? Am I motivated enough to give so much of myself to deliver that level of service, whether it's in a hotel or in an event? Some people are capable of doing it, but some people don't want to do it which is fine, but you don't know it until you're doing your internship or you're getting up at six o'clock in the morning to you know, cut, cut carrots in the kitchen. You don't really know that sort of stuff. You don't learn that in a theory class. You only learn it in a practical class or in a practical environment doing an internship. So um, I, if I was an employer, uh, without a doubt, that's, it's got to be a key component to that profile that I'm looking at. You know, the best students on paper are not necessarily the best managers in reality. And I think we all know that. And I think um, the only way you produce really good managers is by giving them that practical experience. Is there enough of it going on at the moment? I would guess probably not because it's quite costly to do it. Um, and everybody's looking at the bottom line. So that's my assumption, but I might be wrong. I'd like to be wrong. Um, and sometimes I think sometimes uh, a student can just um, finish with um, uh, an associate degree you know, don't don't push yourself if you're not made for academic life at a high level. You know, if you're not made for bachelor level of studies, go out and, um, you know, start working. And there's enough. Get the experience, learn about yourself and then operate, operate, operate. And then maybe that's just good enough. You know, you don't have to be a GM. You don't have to be a CEO. You can be a really good food and beverage manager, make a great career out of it. Or you can do that and then become a GM and a CEO. There's plenty of good examples of people who didn't get do the bachelor, didn't do the masters, who then became extremely successful um, leaders in the world of hospitality. And in your opinion, what kind of skills does a young person need to get into the sport and event management field today? I mean, you've worked with so many young people over the years. What kind of skills are you looking for? What kind of mindset? If you don't mind, I'll go a little bit beyond the skills. I'd just say the profile. Um, for skills are part of that profile. Uh, I would say number one is passion. You know, passionate. As I said, if you don't want something hard enough, then 
particularly in hospitality events, it's not going to work out because it, they're, they're tough jobs. So you've got to be passionate about it. So to be passionate about it, I think uh, particularly in hospitality because it's service related, you've got to be very empathetic. You, you've got to take pleasure out of serving people. And that's not being um, a negative about the concept of serving. That's not about um, you know being a, a slave. It's about actually having pleasure, uh, um, providing something, uh, a service to somebody. So um, that's essential, I think, in hospitality. I apply that also to a degree with events because uh, so much of events is hospitality as well. So I think um, you know the the empathy with the, your customers and your colleagues is extremely important. Um, beyond that, then the skills would be um, obviously uh, being uh, able to think quickly under pressure, um, to be able to um, serve people in a way that doesn't, serving people just by saying yes all the time isn't always good for business. I, I know um, you have to be extremely amenable, but sometimes you need to be quite creative how you uh, solve solutions. So I think um, being creative um, is extremely important. And they're the, what I would call the more generic ones. If you're going to work in food and beverage, then you've got to know your food and beverage. You're going to want to work in front desk, you've got to know your front desk and all that sort of stuff. And again, you learn that partially uh, in the classroom and then you learn it on the ground, which is, uh, uh, again, another um, way of interpreting those theoretical skills. And would you also say that people getting into the sport and event, event management field would also have to be very open-minded and flexible? And I would assume that if you're interested in a global career, then also knowing a little bit about different cultures and experience with traveling so that you're comfortable in different environments, like yourself, you've traveled a lot, you've been in many countries. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Um, a lot of the people that I work with on the um, events, the sports events, I see them all the time. It's the same people. And uh, they're Europeans, there's North Americans, there's Australians, New Zealanders, but then there's Indonesians, there's people from the Philippines, there's Indians, uh, there's people from South America. Uh, so, yes, it's particularly on the World Cup. Uh, FIFA have an obligation to make sure that it is representative of the countries that are partaking in this event. But uh, I would say it's a bit probably, I've never really worked in, in an international scale in hotels. I'd say it's quite similar that you tend to, because um, you're operating in an environment which is quite, um, I'd say, um, controlled. So you, you fly in, you go to your hotel, everything's looked after for you. You go to your venue and then you're working with people uh, that are doing the same job uh, year in or month in, month out and so on. So, um, yes, you do meet people from that country, um, but you're certainly not going to have a lot of time to um, absorb yourself in local culture. You're not on holiday. And as I sort of mentioned before, you're lucky if you get a day off and then probably that day off is going to be doing laundry or sleeping um, uh, or paying your bills back home. Uh, so, um, yes, you, you you're exposed to it and it is extremely important. Being able to work in a team, a multicultural team, without a doubt, is fundamental. And I've seen enough people who are very competent in terms of their skill set, but they just don't have that ability to work in teams uh, under pressure and they, they'll never get another contract again. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't overplay that too, too much. I think what I've just said is important, but I don't think you're going to be able to um, absorb yourself uh, in local culture as much as you would be if you were there uh, on a vacation. So what are your plans for the future? Any new sporting events coming up that you'll be part of? Yeah, it's, uh, um, I haven't signed a contract, but I, um, uh, I'm in process of um, finalizing 
for the Women's World Football World Cup, which is taking place in Australia and New Zealand uh, this summer in July and August. So um, I'm hoping I'll go to Auckland uh, because I have um, family down there. My uncle and cousins are down there. Oh, great. But um, I'll take anywhere. Um, Australia or New Zealand's just fine. Yeah. So, And then there's the Rugby World Cup in September, October as well. There's also the Pan Am Games going on in Chile in the autumn, which is another possibility if the rugby doesn't work out. And, uh, and then next year, it's uh, Paris 2024, uh, Summer Olympics. There's also the Euros, the um, um, UEFA's European Championship, which will take place in uh, May and June, I think. Oh, that's tiring. So at the moment, I'm only aiming for maybe two, maximum three events a year because it is um, quite tough on the family being away. Of course. Yeah. And, and when I'm away, it's kind of, you know, who walks the dog type of thing. Um, <laughs> so he's quite keen for me to um, not do too much work. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm sure your family really appreciates it when you come back. Yeah. And uh, it's also, I think, very healthy to go away as well. Uh, that's part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. They want to get into a routine. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you so very, very much for talking with us today, giving our listeners some insight into this particular kind of profession, which is sport and event, event management. You've had an amazing career, and we wish you the best of luck for these future sporting events. And we would love to welcome you back to Fifty Shades of Hospitality to hear more about this exciting field. Today's episode is being sponsored by Swiss Hospitality Guild. SHG is a training center created to meet the strong demand for specialized hospitality staff. This training concept was born from the experience and expertise of its founder, Egidio Marcato. Egidio has become a reference in the world of hospitality coaching and has had success stories in skills championships, including Swiss skills, Euro skills, and world skills, as well as the AICR World's Best Receptionist Competition. Contact SHG at www.swisshospitalityguild.com.